0: Today on Ag News Daily. So the technical analysis can really uh, you can you can teach yourself all these cute little tricks to find a magic number or a magic level or a reversal point or whatever. But it's it's impossible to prove that that will ever actually work in the commodity markets.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, it's another Ag News Daily podcast Hosted by Ashton Carr, and I am joined with Delaney Howell. Delaney, how was your weekend? It was good, Ashton. It was just not quite long enough. What about you? You know, I can say the same thing. I, of course, did some traveling this weekend. Had a pretty relaxed time. Traveled around OKC a little bit, and it was pretty nice. I can say that Oklahoma really isn't my favorite place to visit, but I definitely really love Oklahoma City.
2: If we have any Oklahoma listeners tuning in,
1: Ashton does not mean that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I feel like just being being from Texas and really North Texas. So I'm right by the Oklahoma border. It's it's like I'm supposed to not really like it. You know what I mean? Okay,
2: that's like the Iowa, Illinois debacle we have here. Folks from those in Nebraska, I would say Iowa, Nebraska versus Iowa, Illinois. Those are probably two of our top competitor states, if you will. So I get it. I get it.
1: Well, I'm certainly glad that that you do get it. And again, Oklahoma listeners, please do don't send me any hate mail or anything <laughs> like that. It's just, you know, something I got to do. Yeah, we get it. We get it. Well, I don't I get it, but uh yeah, I tell you what,
2: Ashton. I spent most of the weekend doing a little house, doing some house projects. I tell you what, I just saw today our neighbors finished up harvest uh, with some of their flattened down corn. Here we are, November 16th. Most of the nation is done, and they're just still chugging right along. So we'll have those crop progress numbers out later today, which we'll report on tomorrow on the podcast. But Ashton, as far as other ag news is concerned, what are you watching
1: today? Well, this story is. Relatively small because it's a new development today, but I still wanted to touch on it because I reported last week that China had seen traces of coronavirus on some meat, and they reported even more cases today. Over the weekend, the Chinese city of Jainan said that they had found coronavirus on beef and their packaging from Brazil, Bolivia, and New Zealand while well, two other capitals detected it on a packaging on a pork from Argentina, and the article really just goes on to talk a little bit about the sanitizing of meat, how they're ramping up testing, and really where those meat packages traveled once they got to China. So I won't go into those details because it, it's relatively, I guess, boring because it just talks about you know the the meat traveling through the country, but um, I just think it's interesting that we're we're seeing more cases pop up on food because I uh, I think you know towards the beginning of the pandemic we saw plenty of cases coming up like this but now we're seeing it again and I don't know if it's just because numbers are spiking or if they're seeing these as they're as packages are just traveling so I uh, definitely thought it was interesting and was up for conversation about this.
2: Mm, that is interesting. Well, I'm glad you opened the door, segued there into talking China. I've got a little bit of Chinese news myself, but not related to coronavirus. Thank goodness. We saw on Sunday that China and 14 other nations signed off on the formation of the world's largest trade deal, which would slash tariffs and other restrictions here over the next 20 years. This deal is widely seen as a victory for China and its goal is to increase its influence globally but these 20 or excuse me 14 different nations include china japan australia south korea new zealand vietnam singapore thailand laos indonesia the philippines cambodia burma and malaysia and uh, they're all now members of the regional comprehensive economic partnership which largely um is similar, I should say, to the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the CPTPP, but uh, this is a rival trade pact, so a little different than our CEP, but very similar as far as countries are made up. But uh, I think the key here is the United States is not part of this, and China is continuing to pave the way for other
1: trading relationships
2: outside of the United States.
1: I wonder how that's going to affect trade relationships, not only with those countries, but of course, with the U.S. since Mm -hmm. it's really not a part of that deal.
2: Yeah, I think that's going to be the big question there is, uh, I mean, especially Japan and Australia. Those are key trading partners for the United States as well as China. And those are some some of the big three when you look at world trading partners and the amount of money that's spent
1: globally. So it's going to be interesting to see how this one develops. It certainly will be, Delaney. But another interesting development that we've been talking about is a COVID-19 vaccine. And drug company Mardina has announced its COVID-19 vaccine is 94.5% effective in preventing coronavirus. And this announcement comes just a week after Pfizer announced its vaccine. And just to recap, Pfizer's vaccine is said to be 90% effective. Both companies are still getting safety data concluded that the FDA deems necessary for consideration of an emergency use authorization that would allow Pfizer and Mardina to distribute a vaccine during the pandemic. And so far, the drug company says that there are not any significant safety concerns from this vaccine. And they also say it intends to file with the FDA for an emergency authorization in the coming weeks. And earlier today, Mardina said that it anticipates sending about 20 million vaccine doses in the U.S. by the end of this year. And then in 2021, they expect to distribute 500 million to 1 billion doses worldwide. I'm going to be really curious
2: to see with these vaccinations being released, will these be required by, you know, employers or businesses or even schools or will folks be is, will it will be like a flu shot where you're sick, strongly recommended to get one, but it's not required.
1: I think that's an interesting topic of topic of discussion as well, especially as we're seeing the transition of the Biden administration. Also, I know that at least I saw an article earlier today from the Meat Science Institute that they're really pushing for food workers to get the first couple of Mm -hmm. vaccines. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see, one, if it is going to be highly recommended or enforced, and two, who is going to be the first groups of people to get that vaccine? Yeah, that's a good point, Ash. And
2: I'm guessing you're right. It's going to be frontline workers, folks working in, you know, food and transportation, the people basically that are essential to living our everyday lives, I'm guessing are going to be those that are pushed to
1: get it first. Absolutely. And I just have one other news story to share with you today, Delaney, and it's, of course, talking about bird flu as we are seeing it kind of run rampant in the European Union. Germany has now seen a case of the type H5N8 bird flu on a turkey farm. The farm is on the island of Rugen in eastern Germany, and the country ordered 16,100 turkeys to be slaughtered. And just to refresh your memory this Monday afternoon, the Netherlands and Britain ordered the culling of a number of birds since early November due to bird flu cases. Denmark has also ordered the calling of 25,000 chickens earlier today as they are seeing the H5NH strain pass through the country. And this was a bit vague in the article that I was reading on the terms and conditions of this but there is also a halt of Danish poultry and egg exports to countries outside the EU for at least three months and I believe Denmark is the first country to confirm that no cases of human contraction of bird flu has been registered in Europe so that's at least a a little bit of a silver lining there.
2: Yeah absolutely you're right I also heard that folks are uh, within the Europe and Asian um, Egg Export Council have been told to, quote, step up their biosecurity efforts. So I think we're seeing people really button down the hatches and, and make sure that that doesn't continue to spread.
1: Absolutely. And as important as it is to step up their biosecurity measures, I think that it might just be a little bit hard since bird flu or at least that strain is running through a lot of wild birds. And, you know, I'm definitely not super knowledgeable about biosecurity measures, especially when it comes to poultry operations. But I would imagine that it is a feat in itself.
2: Yeah, I have to admit as well, I'm not super familiar from it from a poultry perspective, I definitely feel comfortable from a hog or cattle perspective, but I'm not I, I would assume that poultry practices are somewhat similar, but I might be uh, naive in, in, in assuming that. But Ash and I have just one other piece of news before we chat markets and then our conversation today with Elaine Cubb, and that is going back to the transition here as we see uh, President-elect Joe Biden and his transition team working to plan for his transition into the office. And of course, I say this here on, you know, Monday, November 16th, with the assumption that he is, of course, going to be our next president. I think we're still waiting to see that for sure. But uh, that's what I'm going to assume as of right now. And with that, um, he's got, you know, his transition team helping him to assemble, amongst other things, a possible shortlist of cabinet nominations for the, the seat of Secretary of Agriculture. And there have been a few names that have been floated for this new potential position, assuming, of course, that we do see him take office come January. Heidi Heitkamp, a former U.S. Senator from North Dakota, is considered to be the presumptive favorite for this position. And she was actually considered for the role back in 2016 by President Trump before he ultimately selected Sonny Perdue. She is a one-term Democratic Senator. She's been members of the Committee of Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. Uh, she's also been part of different subcommittees when it came to commodities, markets, trade, etc., And she's been suggested to be a pretty moderate Democrat. So it seems that she would be well liked on both Republican and the Democratic side of things. However, she does have a few not red flags, I wouldn't say, but I I suppose for folks that are very left leaning, there are some things that have seen not to be so favorable from Heitkamp. Um, she's been pretty supportive of rollbacks when it comes to environmental regulations. She's been seen as being more conservative when it came to things like that, which is obviously very supportive for us in agriculture, but maybe not so supportive when it comes to folks in her political party. And it's also been rumored that she doesn't tend to stick with the Democratic Party. She doesn't tend to stick, you know, she doesn't vote from what it sounds like as being a one party candidate, which, again, I think that sounds great uh, getting away from the partisanship, but uh, we'll just continue to watch that story again. This is very preliminary, as we still don't even know 100 percent the outcome of this election. But Heidi Heitkamp is kind of the front runner when it comes to USDA secretary, as well as Marsha Fudge and Cherry Bustos have been the other couple of names that have been floated around so far.
1: Yeah, Delaney, I had seen Heidi's name a lot in the past few days or about a week or so, I suppose, of who is really going to get that position with the USDA under a Biden administration. But I'm really excited to see the transition of leadership and who actually gets those seats, because it's definitely been a big topic of discussion Mm -hmm. Since we did get those election results, quote unquote. And so we'll just continue, of course, to keep an eye out on it and see if the Biden administration really uh, takes the cake.
2: Absolutely. We'll continue to watch that. But in the meantime, we've got to watch these markets, Ashton. What do you say? Let's get into them. Well, we saw again green on the screen today heading into the overnight into today's final closing session as Monday proved to be supportive across the grains. And as we're going to talk about here in a little bit with Elaine, weather. It has been top of mind for a lot of folks. Kicking things off here in the December corn contract, up five and three quarters cent to close at 416 and a quarter. The March up four and three quarters to close at 424 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, the January contract up five and a half to close at 1153 and a half. The March up six and a half to close at 1154 and a half. Chicago wheat up as well today as the December contract added four and a half cents to close at 598. The March up two and three quarters to close at 604 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock pits for today, mixed trade as we look at the live cattle pits. December closing 50 cents higher and at 110.42, 1, the February shedding 20 to close at 112.02. Feeder cattle uh, mixed as well with the November down 20 cents to close at 137.27. The January up a nickel to close at 137.92 and a half in mixed trade again as we hit the lean hog markets. December adding a quarter to close at 65.15. The February down at 80 cents to close at 63.75 and rounding on our markets with the Class 3 dairy milk futures. November shedding 12 cents to close at 23.01. The December down a dollar 02 to close at 16.69. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Elaine Cub. Well, joining us for today's hashtag Market Monday conversation is Elaine Cubb, author of Mastering the Grain Markets. Elaine, I've got to admit, I've just been doing a little refresh on that book, by the way. Oh,
0: good. You know, that's the intention, of course, was to make it something that would last and be evergreen and sort of um, knowledge that will always be useful in the grain markets. So it's good to see that it continues to be useful to people. I mean, it's almost it was eight years ago that it was that's, first released in 2012.
2: That's crazy. Eight years ago, huh? Yeah, that is crazy i just another little quick tangent before we talk markets i was reading another book last night um i can't even remember the title jack swagger is the author but he was talking about on a on a candlestick chart if you close and open at the same position Mm. or the same price it's called a doji did you know that no i didn't know that (laughs) i never heard that term before but i was just quite amused by it that's
0: kind of fun well the thing those can i'm not I don't know what that word means, but I assume it's Japanese, right?
2: Uh-huh, I mean, that's a, yeah.
0: Because those candlestick charts, I think they originated in Japan somehow, or I've seen yeah. them called Japanese candlestick charts, and I would be very interested to see what
2: the story behind that is. Yeah, I, I am too. I'm trying to get better about being more technically minded just because... I tend to sway towards the fundamental side of things, but
0: well, I'm going to encourage you to keep doing that, Delaney, because the technical analysis, in my opinion, it can get um, almost fraudulent. You know, there's 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 never been any proven way to show that there are magic numbers mm-hmm. in the commodity markets. That patterns do not repeat themselves. If there were patterns in the commodity markets, the algorithmic traders would so quickly and so easily exploit them that they would instantly become irrelevant again. Mm -hmm. So the technical analysis can really, uh, you you can teach yourself all these cute little tricks to find a magic number or a magic level or a reversal point or whatever, but it's, it's impossible to prove that that will ever actually work in the commodity markets.
2: Well, and I think, Elaine, this year is a good is good proof of that because we saw these counter seasonal rallies. And I know yeah. seasonals are their own kind of basket of things, but we saw or are still seeing commodities rally right now. Let's talk yes. here. Corn, first of all, we saw, especially after last week's WASI report, we haven't had anybody on to talk markets since then. But that was a quite the exciting report for commodities.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's just been a lot of changes to the entire global outlook of supply within the past few months. And, you know, a lot of people make a lot of hay of the fact, like, why why didn't USDA see this happen four months ago? Well, because it hadn't happened yet. I mean, the, the reflections of tighter supply and demand that we see now is because of dry weather in the North American Corn Belt. In August and September, that takes time to realize. And at the same time, poor weather during China's uh, row crop harvest, their northeastern provinces got, you know, damaged by heavy rains and typhoons. So that's just the fundamental uncertainty of the grain markets forever is that it is dependent on weather and weather can change. And so, yes, I mean, it it became suddenly uh, much more bullish than it had been anticipated earlier in the summer.
2: And I'm glad that you brought up China, Elaine, because that's one of the obviously biggest drivers we've seen here on corn and soybean side of things. But talking corn specifically, this number of 30 million metric tons has been floated around as to the number that like private analysts and commercial outfits are suggesting China will import. But we saw last week USDA just confirmed a 13 million metric ton Mm. number. How likely do you think it's going to be that USDA adjusts that number towards that 30 Million number, and at what point in time do you think we'll see that happen?
0: Yeah, I was going to say 30 million sounds like about double what it what mm-hmm. you would have expected, and you say th- between 13 and 30. I think that's that's fair, <laughs> somewhere between there. But yeah, I think the the expectation will be that if the pace continues, when it, and it hasn't actually, the there was a really rapid pace of Chinese purchases of U.S. grain through September, where it was almost every day, they were making purchases so large that you'd get a daily announcement. And now the pace they're still buying, but in smaller chunks. And so you just see good weekly progress, but not the big daily announcements anymore. so, so, yes, I think as we get towards the end of 2020 calendar year 2020, I think, yes, the USDA will have to recognize that and will adjust their number up from 13 million metric tons. That seems extremely conservative. But uh, I guess I don't have a I don't I don't have a number to give you somewhere between 13 and 30.
2: Is there any indication in your mind why we've seen China start to slow down on their exports well, I think there was
0: a sudden push for it, um, the timing of it. In September, there was obviously uh, some campaign uh, going on with their state-owned enter- enterprises and importers. They needed to get a certain amount of business done. And at this point, I don't know if they're just intending to to fill in the gaps and wait until February. I mean, think of that. Like when, once February arrives um, and they can start, to receive supplies from South America, that will suddenly change the price competitiveness at the U.S. Gulf. So we sort of have a timeline here where we can continue to get that good news. But the pace right now is still coming to the United States for those row crops.
2: And Elaine, I'm glad you brought up South America as well. Let's talk about what's going on down there. Any updates for us as far as their planting and or weather pattern is going?
0: Yeah. Yes, yes, you do see rumblings about it being dry. And I think, well, you know, so the soybean market is up six, seven cents today, but I don't know that it is necessarily a reflection of the South American weather forecast. So I think there's potential this week, you know, as the forecast becomes more clear that the soybean market and the, the, the edible oils markets in general, soybean meal included in there will start to reflect more of that weather concern because The forecast as it stands right now is to call for showers. It says, yeah, there's showers coming um, to relieve some of the dryness in portions of Brazil, especially. However, the showers are probably not going to be enough. I think the the newly planted crop and emerged crop is going to show some stress or could start to show some stress here this week, next week, if that forecast, uh, the longer term forecast, uh, plays out as it's looking right now. So I think there's the potential for more bullishness from that weather story as opposed to just the sort of general outside market story that we're seeing today.
2: If there is uh, increased bullishness, Elaine, how much steam is left in these sales then if we look at the soybean markets?
0: Yeah, right. I know. Like I, I, I've been really, I've been selling soybeans. I've been a seller of, uh, of soybeans. And I've been advising everybody who asked me to sell, sell, sell because these are favorable prices. And I, you know, I don't think that back in June any of us really would have expected to see $11.50 soybeans. So don't look a gift horse in the mouth and just, just take advantage of it. But then here I am saying, yeah, there's this dryness in South America. You know, I don't know, Delaney. I guess it's. I didn't think they could get this high. Is it possible that they could go up and test $12? Yes, I. I think so. But I hope that folks aren't getting uh, expectations of 2012 kind of levels. Mm-hmm. I think we should just um, be happy with what we have. Uh,
2: but I mean, you look out longer term, Elaine, if we're having weather concerns like this this year, we're seeing some tighter ending stocks that'll be favorable for next year's production. Uh, and let's say, hypothetically, we look at 2021, we have another weather concern. Mm. Does that paint the picture for $13 soybeans?
0: Yes, yes. If you had two two years of of poor weather in a row in major grain producing areas, absolutely. Then it then you would be looking at at trying to retest historic highs. Um and that's you know that's we experienced that back in 2011, 2012, 2013. Those high prices, they do stick around for years at a time when you have severe stress to supply. But at this point, uh I wouldn't worry about it.
2: And I think that also poses the question, you know, we saw for five, six, seven years, lower commodity prices. Is this our opportunity? Is this our window saying, hey, you know what, we've been through kind of the dregs of the cycle. Now we're going to more of an upward cycle. I don't know. See,
0: sometimes I worry
2: yeah, when you get the high prices, it seems like a good time to
0: to look ahead and start selling 2021's crop and 2022's crop. You know, if I have I don't have 2022 up on my screen, but let's look at that, shall we? You know, that that seems like the opportunity. However, I do worry, yeah. December 2022 corn is 396, so pretty close to that $4 level that folks seem to like. And I do worry that a year like this in 2020 Uh, where you have a harvest rally and you really were not rewarded for pre-harvest hedging and selling ahead of time and being this really proactive marketer, marketer. And now all of a sudden you come to harvest and you would have been better off just selling off the combine that that's going to, um, instill some bad habits, right? People are not going to want to in 2021 and 2022. They're going to be gun shy and not want to do that proactive marketing. So that's, um, you know, that's just a behavioral thing that I hope folks are aware of in themselves uh, to remember that over time uh, the the pre-harvest hedging tends to be the better way to
2: do it. Yeah this year you would have just gotten lucky probably if you'd waited.
0: Yeah I know nothing wrong with luck and and everybody (laughs) does right nobody is 100% sold ahead of time so everybody probably got to participate in the harvest rally to some extent.
2: Absolutely. And we still are seeing a rally And when it comes to the wheat pits as well. Elaine, last week we saw Russia indicate that they were going to cut exports here moving forward. Was that enough to make the markets satisfied or was it just a piece of short-term news that they reacted to, chewed up and spit out? No, I think Russia is
0: definitely the direction that the wheat traders are looking. I'm seeing that they have export quotas set for February to June at 15 million metric tons. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it continues to be um, the moving from one from one day to the next is to see how the sales are made out of Russia.
2: In long term, are what are your thoughts towards wheat? I mean, I feel like we talk about it all the time, but if we're not producing wheat here in the United States, there's another country around the world that's producing at, at the time we're speaking.
0: Yes, absolutely, and and weather, you know. So I do. I was he, yeah. The Russian farmers have. 90 some percent of their wheat planted and it's in poor condition because Mm -hmm. they have relatively dry conditions. Um, And I suppose that's true here in this part of the northern hemisphere too, where you've got most of the the wheat belt or portions of the wheat belt, certainly Colorado is still in that terribly dry scenario. So, you know, poor weather for the winter wheat crop is going to help sort of keep uh, some sort of a floor, I would hope, under these wheat prices.
2: Elaine, let's talk cattle and lean hogs because I know you're uh, helping out this week doing some livestock columns for DTN. What are some factors you're going to be watching this week for livestock? Well, there was just such a big push last week in the cattle markets. This is
0: true for both feeder cattle, where you've got prices out in the countryside jumped by $7 per hundredweight or $12 per hundred weight. I mean, there were big jumps at the various sale barns across the countryside last week for for feeder cattle. And at the same time, live cattle also hit a hit a you know a short term high last week, so this week we're just seeing sort of future sort of pullback. everybody taking a look at that these price levels and hanging out here. Uh, we haven't seen a whole lot of um the the show lists. I don't think that we have any prices that suggest things are gonna be too much different than they were last week in the cash cattle market where it was like a a dollar ten per hundred weight um for the for the live basis steers in the South. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a level that I think tends to be a a pretty natural level for the fed cattle market where everybody can kind of make money. And the market today, at least the futures traders don't seem to want to change anything about last week's prices. They just want to consolidate within previously tested ranges.
2: And tell me a little bit more, the live cattle market's doing some strange stuff right now. You look at the front month, it's uh, higher. I guess what I'm saying is there's mixed trade today. There's December up, February down, and April up. Why the why the different uh, price discrepancies like that?
0: That could just be a reflection of pretty low volume being mm-hmm. traded today. But you'll notice that's also happening in the, in the hog market, too, where you've got, yeah, the nearby December is up and most of the other nearby contracts going out into the middle of 2021 are lower. So that lower uh, movement in the hog seems to be the the major theme to get this week started. And that's a continuation of last week's slide. In fact, when you're looking out at like the, um, the February hog contract, they're now low enough Let's see, the low so far today was 63.70, and that's lower than it's been since the middle of September. So during this entire fall time frame, we're now hitting fresh lows in some of these uh, these deferred hog contracts. So that's kind of bearish, and I think that's a reflection um, of a lot of things, probably just weights and and overall supply.
2: Would you say that those are just short-term bearish indicators, or do you think that this is uh, button down the hatches and prepare for the long haul here?
0: Well I don't know that it's going to be uh, you know that that this lower trend on the charts is going to be really severe I believe it could probably flatten itself out but these overall um, mechanics in the in the the hog market where you've got lots of hogs coming to be slaughtered that has been a you know, a feature of this market for the past 18 months. And it will continue to be a feature of this market is that there's not in the United States any real concern about finding enough supply.
2: Absolutely. Well, Elaine, before I let you go, let our listeners know if they want to connect with you outside of just listening to you on the podcast. How can they do so?
0: Well, you can always track me down on Twitter. I'm at Elaine Cub. Cub is spelled with a K
2: fantastic well Elaine thanks so much for joining again today in chat markets absolutely have a good one Delaney well again a big thank you there to Elaine for chatting markets with us I tell you what folks her book really is a fantastic book I wasn't saying that just to to uh, you know tease her up here ahead of the markets but uh, she's got great resources there if you are interested in learning a little
1: bit more about the markets. And we always have some great resources that we share on our social media as well as our other podcast episodes, which you can find on the Ag News Daily website at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us on social media while you're at it at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.